Yemen, the Saudis start the biggest attack the UN fear could kill thousands. North Korea, Kim promises to get rid of nuclear warheads, but by when could Trump be telling it like it is? Sabre strike the NATO war game on Russia's old territory. And what happened to Marine Addis? A humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding in Yemen, where the Saudi-led coalition has launched a major offensive on the rebel-held port of Hodeidah. The UN Security Council is meeting today for urgent talks on the situation, a meeting requested by Britain. The UK is a major arms supplier to Saudi Arabia. I'm joined by Matthew Morris, who is the UK spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Hello, Matthew. Uh, What are you hearing about the humanitarian situation? Well, the situation across the country after three years of com- conflict has, uh, is, is desperate. The Yemeni people, their lives uh, are really under great strain. This conflict has crippled the country uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a population that's on the edge. Now, with uh, our concerns about this new military intervention around Hodeida is, is twofold. Obviously, it's a busy city. It's a big city with around 400,000 people in it. And we're concerned that um, urban warfare could be imposed on them. Uh, and secondly, that uh, this is a lifeline. Hodeida port is a lifeline for the country. Before the conflict, something like 90% of uh, important supplies for the country would come in through that port. Um, and three quarters of that number um, uh, uh, sorry, 90% of, of um, supplies for Yemen would would be imported across the country, but most of that, three quarters of that, would come in through that one port. So this Hodeida port is, is, is a busy city and it's also a lifeline for humanitarian and trade supplies. You describe it, yes, as a lifeline. Is there any other way for food and medicine to get in? There are other ports, there are other ways, but because of uh, the situation and the way things have developed in the last three years, it's extremely difficult. Other ports like Aden and Salif, but the numbers of of the amount of of products that that were coming in before the conflict were nothing like they were in uh, Hodeida. We we also are calling for Sanaa Airport to be reopened for humanitarian supplies. That's something that's not happened. We ourselves at the ICRC, we've tried different ways and means. We've tried a land route uh, to try and get some of our supplies in from Oman across to Yemen, but it's it's very long, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's very, very difficult terrain. So uh, ultimately, because of the importance of this port, uh, it's, it's very difficult to find a, an easy alternative. And about what about the supplies of water and electricity? In what state are they in this area? It's a good question. I mean, over the last year or so, something like three million people have, have, have benefited from some of the work that we're doing in water and sanitation. And, and, and that sounds like a, not a lot, but it, 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 it's just not enough. We know that from UN figures, something like 16 million Yemenis lack access to safe water. One example of, of something we had to be involved in back at the end of last year, we had to we had to pay for fuel for the water boards in the city of Taiz and also in Hodeida, because ultimately, if we hadn't done, the water would run would have run dry because there would have been no power um, to 
provide the uh, water to, to, to run. So uh, it is a desperate situation. It's been desperate for some time. And that's what's intensely worrying and frustrating for us is, you know, my colleagues, we've been talking about the catastrophic situation for some time. It's hard to, it's hard to find the words for how much worse this can get. Mm, what does the ICRC want governments and the UN to do? We have consistently called and we call this week for all sides involved in this conflict, whether it's those on the ground uh, engaged technically, physically in hostilities or those that support them or those that back them wherever they are in the regional wider uh, further afield um, they, they must observe international humanitarian law uh, military objectives uh, fighting sides have military objectives but they also have legal and moral obligations civilians are not part of the fight civilian infrastructure so uh, hospitals medical facilities uh, ports uh, schools homes are not to be targeted by anybody at any stage. And those are the kind of messages that we're reminding everybody of right now. Stay with us, Matthew. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here in the studio. Uh, Christopher, why have the Saudis done this? You go back to March 2015, and the coalition, that's the Saudi Arabia plus eight members of the, uh, of, of the Gulf states, they started bombing Houthi rebels who'd forced Yemen's president genuine president, recognized president, uh, uh, Rabu uh, Mansur Hadi, into exile. Uh, the Saudis see the Houthis as Iranian proxy forces, and some of the weapons don't definitely come from uh, I- Iran. And don't forget, Iran is, is, is Shia, and Saudi is... is, is um, not so. Therefore, there is a, a, a big background to this in in the area. The time when these the the Houthis took uh, took the port, and therefore sort of stopped anything coming in or anything going out as well. Uh, the Saudis decided that they were going to do something about it. They 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 gave an option: you either sort of pull out or, or start to pull out by Tuesday. Um, the UN, having failed to actually come to any conclusion, they did not, and so they gathered their forces mm. and started a land, a sea, and an air operation. The idea is not just to bomb it, but is to take it. It's the biggest city they've ever tried to take. Well, let's also bring in Professor Michael Clark, formerly Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today, Michael. Um, mm. The argument that is also put forward by the Saudi-led coalition is that this uh, this port, Hudaydah, is also being used along with the air supplies, uh, the aid supplies, to bring in arms for the Houthi rebels. Is, is do you think that that is a valid argument? And if it is, is there, is there a way to stop this from happening and to let the aid in? Um, very difficult because it certainly is used as an arms route as far as we know and because it's the major port it's the easiest access to the areas that the Houthis control Um, in most conflicts it's almost impossible to prevent aid being used as a cover for the delivery of of arms I think the best thing that we can hope for in this case is that this battle is over very quickly or that the aid organizations can somehow uh, as we work around mm. what the military are doing. But I have to say, it doesn't look very good. And Matthew Morris, is there a way that the aid agencies can work around what the military are doing? Is there a way to separate it off and protect the aid so that it is not mixed up with the supply of arms? Well, well the OCRC, we've, we've 
put in place supplies uh, in certain locations in Hodeida, obviously in, in anticipation of a, a fresh offensive. So we've we've shared medical supplies with several hospitals, uh, water purification systems, uh, other sanitation supplies in different locations, and, and we're working with the staff and the volunteers of the Yemeni Red Crescent. I have to say, though, that some of this work it can't happen while there are hostilities and and for us the the we've had a, a a very devastating situation in the last couple of months where a colleague of ours in the northern city tires was killed uh and as a result of a thorough security review we've had to take some staff out of yemen generally but also many of the staff out of Hodeida. so it's very difficult it was very difficult months ago to be able to do substantial life-saving work where we where we could but it's even harder today and obviously we are watching with concern developments because ultimately when there are ongoing hostilities it's very hard to do any kind of life-saving work at all. All right Matthew Morris I know you have to go and get on with your work thank you for joining us today that was Matthew Ma- Morris the UK spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Still to come, the NATO exercise where Russia is not the enemy, but is. And will we ever know why a young Marine went missing 38 years ago and has never been found? North Korea, the Trump-Kim meeting happened, perhaps the most important outcome. They both agreed on some of the denuclearization of North Korea. The US Secretary of State is picking up the hard line on this agreement. Kim's nuclear weapons have to be gone by the time President Trump either leaves office or starts running for a second term. Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, by the time Trump comes to the end of his first four years in office, what does he have to do and what does Kim have to do to make that whole Korean peninsula a safer place for world peace? Well, it would be very difficult indeed. I think um, in order for this to look like a success by the time the first Trump administration comes to an end, then the North Koreans have to be seen to dismantle quite a lot of facilities and that would have to be verified internationally and of course there must be no more tests either of certainly not any more nuclear tests but even ballistic missile tests now if trump can turn around or mike pompeo more to the point can turn around in two and a half years and say look nothing else has happened in relation to the development of their program and the following eight facilities have all been publicly checked and are being dismantled then that would begin to look like success It wouldn't stop North Korea becoming a nuclear power in the future, but it would show that uh, Kim Jong-un is, as it were, sincere, apparently, about moving down that road. Um, And on his part, Kim Jong-un would want some lifting of sanctions in that time, and that's what the Americans would find quite difficult to do. But probably China is looking to lift sanctions quite soon. So Kim Jong-un might just be able to live with that. Mm, Christopher Lee, effectively, would become a demilitarised zone, not just nuclear weapons. Yeah, potentially. Um, this is slightly fantasy world, but why not? Um, that whole region could become one of the most important regions on the whole globe. Uh, when you think about who's there and what they want, I mean, for example, China wants something, Japan wants something, South Korea wants something, Russia wants something, China wants a, a, a denuclearized zone. Of course it does. It also wants North Korea to be stable uh, because... I mean, China is actually even now building uh, refugee camps in case everything goes pear-shaped 
and you start getting refugees crossing over in, into China. Uh, so uh, Japan says, well, hang on, you're agreeing to not have uh, uh, military exercises with the South Koreans? This is bad for us because we've got a security problem with, with, with China. Um, but we might get uh, something with North Korea here because there were a lot of people went missing from Japan in the 70s and 80s, and we don't know what happened to them, we might get that sort of friendship that allows you to have that. And that's very important in Japan. It may not sound so much important in this part of Western Europe. And then there's the other part, which in some ways is the most important part, and that is South Korea itself and President Moon. Uh, President Moon has done a most amazing amount of work to bring this whole thing together, and it shouldn't be ignored. Uh, but it, it's, it's all based on his policy, which is official... Uh, party policy of uh, reorganization of the whole uh, peninsula. In fact, North and South Korea may not be one nation, but it, uh, it has a sort of federal state. If this works, then Moon is, is uh, people turn around and say, yeah, you actually were right about this. So his whole political position, and then there's Russia. You know, if you look at the map, look at a, look at a bendy map, you know, the round map, the orange map, and you start looking where Eastern Russia is in proportion to all that has gone on. Putin thinks in distances. That area as a, a, as a more placid area, uh, ignore what's going on in the South China Seas, et cetera, et cetera, but uh, uh, that becomes extraordinarily important. Professor Michael Clark, uh, when you put this meeting in context, effectively legitimizing a despot in the eyes of the world, and we do expect a meeting with President Putin to come next, uh, what do you think, um, the, the consequences are? Is it good for world peace or is it bad for world peace? I think ultimately it's bad for lots of things in the world. I mean, the point about President Trump is that people like him, um, they shake everything up. So it's like an explosion in a warehouse. Um, and by the law of averages, some of the crates, if you blow them all up, might come down in more convenient spots. So there may always be one or two good things coming out of this, uh, this, uh, this attempt to break everything up. But in general... The fact that we have an American president who wants to give all of his allies in Europe and East Asia a good kicking and is very comfortable cozying up to some of the world's greatest dictators, that doesn't send a very good message either for world peace or for liberal democracy. Mike, um, and it really does make it very difficult. Hey, Mike, it's another thing here, isn't there? Uh, Korea, North Korea, when at 26 years of age uh, Kim became president or became mm. leader, the North Korea was run by three or four very powerful families. Indeed, yeah. Uh, three of those families are still running the place. And what they want is extraordinarily important because they actually have power. They run it with power. The fact that he, for example, took an anti-aircraft missile and blew apart his, his uncle is spectacular, but didn't actually break up the, the, the family power. Is there... Uh, in North Korea, a very powerful family system of four sopranos, for example, who mm. really have to okay all this that's going on. Otherwise, uh, the American view that it all should be settled by the time President Trump comes to the end of his mm. first period, uh, that, that just goes to hell in a handbasket. Yes, it does. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's four families and the military who are really the main constituents that Kim Jong-un has got to keep um, happy. And anything that comes out of this process with the United States has got to be something which benefits these people. Um, so just like uh, Putin uh, in, in Russia 
there is a sort of group of oligarchs and they, in a, in a way, have to get something out of the process. Now, that's, that's actually in a, in a sort of a good thing because it's, it's therefore entirely possible that gradual lifting of sanctions could be designed to, to bring those people on board, those four families and for the military to come on board. You do have to swallow hard because here we are legitimizing a wicked dictator who is already a nuclear power. And that lesson is not lost on the Iranians who say, look, you know, the Koreans are about as bad as it gets. We're the ones who America is breaking its deals with, and we're not even a nuclear power. And we, we, you know, we don't sponsor criminality in all of our embassies around the world and so on. And so the Iranians, I think, will probably go hell for leather um, for nuclear weapons, uh, spurred on by the idea that the Americans only take you seriously when you've crossed the nuclear threshold and you are a nuclear power. And mm. the biggest idea of world proliferation of nuclear weapons, forget necessarily the weapons themselves. Think of the technology that chemist people yeah. have which yep. are a lucrative export, and that is part of the whole system of proliferation. Well, before Singapore, there was Canada and the summit meeting of the group of seven major economic nations in the world, the G7. Uh, Michael Clark, Trump rubbished all the other G7 leaders and for good measure accused NATO of riding on the back of the United States defence spending. Why did he say that? Does he just see everything in terms of money? I think he does. He's very transactional, as, as we say. Um, the, the fact is that when he's with his allies, I think he finds these people very difficult. And I, I have a theory that he worries that he will be as well, intellectually outclassed by these people because, you know, the, most of these leaders are very bright. They're very well briefed. He knows that he isn't so well briefed. And I suspect that his sense, a certain inner sense of insecurity leads him to be very assertive, very arrogant, because I suspect there's a real insecurity there. And, again, his instinct is that NATO needs to do more for its own defence, and that's almost certainly true. Uh, in fact, I would very much agree with that. But there's ways and means of going about pushing that. Um, and the idea that he insults all of his friends is a very strange uh, way of behaving, except you can say that he flip-flops and the following week he, he may completely change, as if he'd never said it in the first place. Mm. And there is a sort of strange temperament at work here. It's, it's interesting, if you look at the uh, the table layout um, during that G7 meeting, the initial stages of the G7 meeting, and this was for the protocol, uh, who did he have, Trump, on either side of him? He had the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Mm. He didn't have Pompeo, he didn't have, or they were only one, one step down, but these were the people that he, that, that he could actually talk to. And when he's talking to, let's say, the International Monetary Fund, and he says, listen, G7, why do we actually need them? Because we now don't do things this way. We don't get anything settled. There are a lot of people who are going to turn around and say, yeah, there could be something. There could be very much something in what Trump is doing. It is the way that he does it that is, that is the huge difficulty. The other thing is... Do you think he's th going to get more people, more countries contributing more to NATO? No, because they haven't got any money. I mean, when you, when you if you take, say, 27, 28 countries uh, and only four can, can match a 2% or are willing to politically to match a 2%, that becomes very important. When, when Trump sees it, you can go back to mm. 2000, uh, 1991, 2001, 2003, and you can start as far as he's concerned, is class. Chris Willey, stay with us. But for now, Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of RUSI, thank you for your time today.
Now, British troops have joined 18,000 multinational personnel taking part in the largest ever exercise, Sabre Strike. The NATO training takes place every year in Eastern Europe, but Russia is increasingly viewing the training as pro- provocation. Ali Gibson has more from northwest Poland. British reservists from 335 Medical Evacuation Regiment are practicing treating a soldier who's been exposed to a chemical agent. Staff Sergeant Ian Skirm is overseeing their training. You can't just bundle that person into the back of an ambulance and contaminate the, the ambulance, contaminate the hospital. So they've got to sort of decontaminate and provide first aid. We need to be mindful that this threat is always there and um, to keep these drills current, we, that's what we need to rehearse and practice. The Russian government has said it sees these large war games near its borders as provocation. Over two weeks, 18,000 personnel from 19 different nations train across Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, led by the US Army. NATO forces say Sabre Strike is just a routine exercise among allies. But with Russia's annexation of Crimea and a suspected Russian chemical attack in Salisbury, world threats feed into the training for these regular and reservist personnel. Major General Bill O'Leary is the Deputy Commander Field Army. We know there are areas in the world that there's friction. We need to make sure that our allies, for example the Baltic states, know that we are here. So for us to be able to come along and train with them, that's vitally important for not just our regular forces, but for our army reserves as well. Everybody clear? Clear. Inside the Exercise Field Hospital at Swindon Air Base, Polish medics have been training with their British and American counterparts. Interoperability, working with other nations, has been a sabre-strike buzzword. But in recent weeks, there have been calls from some Baltic states for an increase in permanent troop numbers. Poland has asked US forces if they'd base an armoured brigade here. For Colonel Wojciech Wyczynski, who commands the Polish 1st Army Field Hospital, and 2nd Lieutenant Sobolewski, an army physician, it's valuable training. We can learn the same procedures, we can uh, learn how countries work. We will be ready to uh, work on a mission. As a young officer, this is probably like the best starting point I could ask for. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, people with in-field experience that are willing to share this uh, experience. Since early 2017, there's been an enhanced forward presence of troops in Eastern Europe. NATO says Sabre Strike is not an extension of that, but rather a routine exercise in deterrence. But as the alliance prepares to meet next month for a security summit, Russia is very much on the agenda. Ali Gibson, Forces News in northwest Poland. Royal Falkland Islands police are reviewing the inquiry into the disappearance of a Royal Marine 38 years ago. Alan Addis was 19 when he went missing from the Falkland Islands in 1980, two years before the war with Argentina. Marine Addis was part of a group instructed to go to a camp on East Falkland to train local defence volunteers. So they set sail, stopping overnight at a small settlement called North Arm to pick up supplies. They went to a party that evening at a social club and the next morning, Marine Addis failed to get back on the boat. The other servicemen did not report him missing at the time. Professor John Hunter is a forensic archaeologist. Why did the boat sail without him? Why was he not realised he was missing? There was a wall of silence there. Nothing really seemed quite right. Nothing seemed to fit. A little bit of a mystery. 
Well, Alan's mother, Anne, died in 2011. Jim Fairfield, Alan's section corporal, is sorry she'll never know the truth. Royal Marines, Royal Marine family, we couldn't give Anne anything that she wanted. We certainly couldn't give her a boy back. But following the review of existing papers, the superintendent at the Royal Falkland Islands Police says there are now some new potential lines of inquiry. Alan's childhood best friend, Paul Clark, is hopeful they'll make a difference. Let's face it, he disappeared off the face of the earth. And there's people out there who know who done it, the bloke who done it, knows he done it. Well, the story is now the subject of a special Forces TV investigation. Martina Andretta is one of the producers and joins us now. Hello, Martina. What is this new stuff about in the case? So, yeah, so some of the existing papers um, have been subjected to a tabletop review by the Royal Fol Island Falklands Police. Um, the superintendent has also told us that there are some potential lines of inquiry that are being discussed with the Attorney General's office. Um, this is what we've been told we've got from the police from the islands but what then we found out ourselves is that alan wasn't supposed to be there so that's new information that we haven't seen on any of the documents before the fact that he wasn't meant to go to this mission on uh, north arm um, and also something that came out from the documents is how police in 1993 in January in the 90s investigations was uh, really critical of what was done originally in 1980 when he went missing so um they did find that there were some failings, in a way, um, in the way the, the investigation was carried out. Mm. In 1981, a year after he went missing, the MOD Special Investigations Branch went to the Falklands and what they found out was classified, confidential and not publicly released. Why was that, Christopher? Um, it was classified and at that stage, this is 19... Uh, don't forget when this was, 1981. Uh, this is a year before the Falklands War, when things are quite different. And incidentally, uh, the, the police the police force on the Falklands was one constable, and then they had some, some irregulars as well. When you classified something, even confidential, it's very difficult to get it unclassified. It was stamped classified. There were some details in it, and one of the details was, uh, for example, a, a, a question... When uh, uh, Naval Party 8901, which is what this group was called, when it went off and stopped uh, for, for a hootenanny at the, at, at, at the farm, uh, the normal procedures weren't followed. So when you go back on the motor vessel Forest to continue the journey the next morning, the, uh, the corporal of the boat, natural thing to do, is you do you do a head count and a check count. You all know each other anyway, but you do that. They either didn't do it or they didn't bother because they knew that something else had happened and it was the something else that happened which is the disturbing piece. Now, later on, you get four people, suspects, uh, who were involved in his disappearance, although so that was thought. But the evidence that could pin them down and the consequences of this... Uh, was not necessary to bring forward because of the lack, the impossibility of that stage of getting a, a, a prosecution going. And that was one of the reasons that until it could be used again, you stamp mm. it confidential, yeah. which means that nobody can take it well, you're and just about dismiss it. You're talking about prosecution for, for we don't know what happened and a body's not being found. Martina, is it thought there's somebody still in the Falcons that could be charged at all? Well... Uh, 
to be honest, I don't know, but what we what we know is there are people on the islands that are still to this day that were there that night. So, um, so they the answer is really yes, isn't it? I mean, if there's, I don't know whether it could be charged, listen, but they should. If a guy goes know. missing and he goes missing, they think at that particular occasion, and there are still people around who were at that occasion. Then you've got potential suspects. That's that's it. Whether you've got enough to take a police investigation forward mm. is another matter Martina, altogether. What kind of reaction have you had to this story? So um, it was quite surprising, really, to find out how many people already knew about this story, even though there were people that served it years after. Because it's been the subject of a rumour mill for, for, for ever since, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. And, uh, you know, 38 years, uh, when you, we thought not, not many people are going to know about it. But I think because of the fact how close and how small this community is on the Falklands is something that kind of stuck around for all these years. And, um, and yeah, and people know about it and been looking into this case and they finally... Can I just re- just remind people that uh, Royal Marine uh, Addis's mother, who was very much involved in in looking for the consequences of this, mm. in 2010 was it? 2010 said enough's enough. Uh, we were going to have a memorial to him. We will not. Let's give the money that we had to continue this investigation to help for heroes. She closed yes. it uh, effectively. But the people of the Falklands. Did not close so it because Martina, they got memories. Martin, just tell us when we can see the programme, what it's called. Yeah, so this programme is going to be on, on Friday the 15th at 7pm and on Sunday at 9am. Um, the name is Missing the Falklands, but meanwhile you can also watch it online at www.missingmarine.com and there's going to be lots of exclusive content, podcasts so and other documents. That's on Forces TV. Martina Andretta, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS at Rep. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Speak to you same time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.